Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special bonus episode of the Great Woman Artist podcast. While we wait for the launch of the next season to air, I thought I'd give you a special look into my upcoming book, The Story of Art Without Men, a book that aims to overthrow the canon charting the last 500 years of art history by women and out next Thursday, the 8th of September, by reading the first 30 minutes for you. This can be bought as an audiobook with an accompanying PDF available in your Audible library and is narrated by me. You can find all the information in the show notes. But before we get into this, I am delighted to say that this episode is generously supported by Christie's Auction House, who have the most exciting upcoming sales, which you can view for free at their King Street exhibition spaces. I want to tell you about three. First up is the Sina Gina Collection, the largest collection of contemporary art from Africa and the diaspora to come to market, which will showcase artists alongside their 20th and 21st century London evening sale. This includes the like of Ellen Atsui, William Kentridge, Lynette Yadamboeche, to name but a few, and on view in their King Street galleries from the 6th to the 13th of October. Then British artists are at the heart of Freeze Week for Christie's, and the public viewing dates for this is the 6th to the 13th of October. To celebrate the 10th edition of the 154 Art Fair, Christie's continues their partnership with 154. Previously, they have staged exhibitions in London and New York and hosted the fair in Paris in the absence of the Marrakesh edition. Stand by for further details of the October collaboration. To round things off, I am delighted to find out that 48% of living artists in the June 20th and 21st century evening sale were female. All right, it's now time for the story of Art Without Men. Thank you to Christie's for supporting this episode and I hope you enjoy this audiobook. The Story of Art Without Men, written and read by me, Katie Hessel. This audiobook comes with a PDF download, so you can see the artworks referenced throughout the book as you are listening. I'll show you what a woman can do. Artemisia Gentileschi, 1649. Introduction In October 2015, I walked into an art fair and realised that, out of the thousands of artworks before me, not a single one was by a woman. This sparked a series of questions. Could I name 20 women artists off the top of my head? 10 pre-1950, any pre-1850? The answer was no. Had I essentially been looking at the history of art from a male perspective? The answer was yes. At the time, the exclusion of women artists and other underrepresented figures from the history of art was becoming an urgent issue. I had just graduated from my BA in art history and had chosen to study Alice Neal, a great American painter of psychologically charged portraits of people from all walks of life. But Neal was only recognised as a major painter by the art establishment when she was already in her 70s. Studying Neil helped me notice the overwhelming underrepresentation of women artists. They weren't in galleries, they weren't in museums, they weren't in contemporary shows, and they weren't to be found in art history. Why was this? The lack of women recognised as significant artists has been a subject of debate since at least the 1970s, when Linda Nochlin's groundbreaking essay, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists?, was published at the dawn of the second-wave feminist movement. Over 40 years later, 
it didn't seem that enough had changed. When listing the artists who are typically said to define the art historical canon, it is the following names that most often come up. Giotto, Botticelli, Titian, Leonardo, Caravaggio, Rembrandt, David, Delacroix, Manet, Gauguin, Van Gogh, Kandinsky, Pollock, Freud, Hockney, Hurst. I am sure that many of you will have heard of them. But how many of these artists would you recognise? Anguissola, Fontana, Serrani, Peters, Gentileschi, Kaufman, Powers, Lewis, MacDonald Macintosh, Valadon, Hock, Asawa, Krasner, Mendieta, Pindell, Hamid. If I hadn't actively studied women artists for the past seven years, I doubt I would know more than a fraction of these names. Should any of this be surprising? Not according to statistics. A study published in 2019 found that in the collections of 18 major US art museums, 87% of artworks were by men and 85% by white artists. Currently, women artists make up just 1% of London's National Gallery collection. This same museum only staged their first ever major solo exhibition by a historic female artist, Artemisia Gentileschi, in 2020. And 2023 will mark the first time the Royal Academy of Arts in London has ever hosted a solo exhibition by a woman in their main space, that being Marina Abramovich. Just one woman of colour has individually won the Turner Prize, Lubaina Hamid, in 2017. And it took until 2022 for the first woman of colour to represent the US, Simone Lee, and the UK, Sonia Boyce, at the Venice Biennale, the most prestigious art event in the world. When I conducted a YouGov survey in early 2022 to find out the British public's knowledge of women artists, results showed that 30% could name no more than three. 83% of 18 to 24-year-olds could name not even three and more than half said they'd never been taught about women artists at school. The night of the art fair, I couldn't sleep. Frustrated and angry about what I'd just witnessed, I typed the words women artists into Instagram. Nothing appeared. And so, at the great women artists, a name that pays homage to Nocklin, was born. I set myself the task of writing daily posts, spotlighting artists ranging from young graduates to old masters, working across every medium, from painting to sculpture, photography to textiles. Adopting an accessible style, my aim was then, as it is now, to appeal to anyone of any art historical level interested in learning the stories of these mostly overshadowed artists. Just as I have done, on a more expansive scale, in a podcast of the same name which launched in 2019. I do this to break down the stigma around elitism in art. Art can be for anyone, and anyone can be part of this conversation, and to showcase artists so often excluded from the history books and courses I studied. It's not that I believe there to be anything inherently different about work created by artists of any particular gender. It's more that society and its gatekeepers have always prioritised one group in history, and I think it is vital for this to be addressed and challenged. Nearly seven years later, the result is this book the story of art without men. This is not a definitive history. It would be an impossible task, but I am looking to break down the canon I have so often been confronted by in the culture in which I have grown up. 
the canon of art history is global. However, with the male Western narrative being so unjustly dominant at the expense of others, it is this that I unpack and challenge. The book takes its title from the so-called introductory Bible to art history, E.H. Gombrich's The Story of Art. It's a wonderful book, but for one flaw. His first edition, published in 1950, included zero women artists, and even the 16th edition includes only one. I hope this book will create a new guide to supplement what we already know. Artists pinpoint moments of history through a uniquely expressive medium and allow us to make sense of a time. If we aren't seeing art by a wide range of people, we aren't really seeing society, history or culture as a whole. And so I hope more books will follow this one, expanding the canon even more. Progress is happening. This is thanks to a collective effort by actively engaged artists, art historians, scholars and curators around the world of all different ages and backgrounds. It is their work I am greatly indebted to, as without them it would have been impossible to write this book. I draw here on the extensive research by and my many discussions with spearheading art historians and curators who are endeavouring to change our understanding of art and who makes it. And you can find their works listed in the bibliography at the end of this PDF download that comes with this audiobook. Many of them have uncovered the detail of these artists' lives for the very first time. There is no denying that the increased attention to non-male artists enjoying blockbuster shows or appearing more frequently on museum walls is due to those who now hold top-tier positions in museums. For the first time in history, women have taken the helm of the Tate, the Louvre and the National Gallery of Art, DC, to name but a few. What does this demonstrate? That the inequalities in galleries and museums are reflective of a larger systemic issue and so a lot of what we see needs to change. The same can be said for how we place monetary value on genders in society, considering that the highest price fetched at auction by a living woman artist, Jenny Savile's Propped from 1992, was just 12% of the highest price achieved by a male living artist, David Hockney's Portrait of an Artist, Pool with Two Figures, 1972, which topped $90.3 million. I hope this book will show you that the difference in price is not due to inherent quality, but to the value we put on different creators of art. In the past decade, we have seen a huge number of art historical corrections take place, from the numerous survey exhibitions dedicated to women sculptors, painters, abstractionists or surrealists, such as Fantastic Women, Surreal Worlds from Mary Oppenheim to Frida Kahlo, we wanted a revolution, Black Radical Women, 1965 to 1985, or Radical Women, Latin American Art, 1960 to 1985, to the first major solo exhibitions of Pauline Boti, Carmen Herrera, and Hilma Af Klint, among others. I hope we will see more, and that my next art fair offers me a different experience to the one back in 2015. So here is my take on the story of art without men. Because while the statistics remain so shocking, it feels important to remove the clamour of men in order to listen carefully to the significance of other artists to our cultural histories. Beginning in the 1500s and ending with those defining the 2020s, I have divided this book into five parts 
which each focus on significant shifts or moments in mostly Western art history. To avoid artists only being seen as the wife of, the muse of, the model of, or the acquaintance of, I have situated them within their social and political context, in the time in which they lived. While I have grouped artists within established movements, for the purpose of clarity, I am keenly aware that artists are not the products of categories, but rather individuals with varied lives and careers who spearheaded key changes in styles. In the history of art, however, such moments have nearly always been attributed to men, and women's pioneering work has often been overlooked. So, although I have merely skimmed the surface of many of these artists' multi-layered and for some still evolving oeuvres, which can encompass more mediums, cultures, styles or time spans than those works and movements discussed here, I hope this book will give you an insight into at least a fraction of the work of non-male artists who have contributed to the story of art. Part 1. Paving the Way, circa 1500 to circa 1900. Triumphant Women Being an artist and a woman has never been easy. In the 16th and 17th centuries, leading male artists tackling five-metre-high marble sculptures and covering entire chapels with frescoes were often termed virtuosi, while women, simply by virtue of their gender, received neither the acclaim nor the opportunities. As time progressed, attitudes did not. It took until the end of the 19th century for women to be allowed to study the nude from life. Linda Nochlin has described this deprivation as though a medical student were denied the opportunity to dissect or even examine the naked human body. Even today, the contribution of women artists tends to be missing from history books and museum collections. It wasn't until 1976 when feminist art historians Nochlin and Anne Sutherland Harris's touring exhibition Women Artists 1550-1950 opened at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art that women were even acknowledged as having contributed to 400 years of art. This show kick-started the scholarship, still scant, that we have on these pre-20th century artists. Until that point, the role of women in the history of art had been at best a curiosity. During the Victorian age, women with their smaller, less creative brains were considered incapable of becoming professional artists and were often restricted to craft or design, genres not considered fine art by the establishment. This perception made it very difficult not only for women to be taken seriously as artists, but for their and their female predecessors' work to be sold. In order to get around this, 19th century art dealers were known to scratch out a female artist's signature and replace it with that of a male contemporary, which explains why so many works by women have only just come to light. No wonder some of them hid self-portraits among their still lifes. Let's write this wrong, because despite their many educational, personal and professional setbacks, and the lack of historians championing their work by some excellent feminist scholars, including Griselda Pollock and Whitney Chadwick, women artists were also driving the changes of their time. They broke boundaries, taught the next generations, and, often rejecting gender conventions and tackling radical subjects, paved the way for the artists of today. 
To even begin to understand these trailblazers, we must examine the context in which they were working. This will enable us to realise their triumphs as artists, given their lack of social and financial freedoms, resources and training, all while living in cultures which valued them as less than men. To be taken seriously as an artist in Renaissance Europe, a liberal arts education was required. The study of literature, mathematics, perspective and, significantly, human anatomy, drawing from art and live models, including nudes. Also key was access to cultural centres such as Rome, Florence or Venice to study and experience the splendour of Renaissance art and architecture or ancient classical ruins. All of this was, however, off-limits for women. This lack of access to knowledge exacerbated existing class divisions, which were already particularly acute for women, whereas boys from lower social classes could be apprenticed in order to learn most female artists were either the daughters of artists or daughters of wealthy and encouraging noblemen. Alternatively, and only if they were educated, they could join a nunnery where basic activities included copying texts and adorning manuscripts. Essentially, women artists had to have a powerful man, which might include God, looking after their interests. And while having a supportive artist father or husband might mean access to a studio where a female could copy the work of her male peers, she was still extremely restricted in her experience. Things didn't get any easier for hundreds of years. Women were still banned from full inclusion at artist academies in the 19th century. It was not until the late 1800s that they were able to access a state-funded artistic education and allowed to wander unchaperoned in the streets or visit churches, the latter being another block to the imagination when it came to producing the most popular images of the day, grand, multi-figured historical or biblical scenes with particular attention paid to the human anatomy. So how did women artists get around this? In the 16th and 17th centuries, they worked mainly in still life and portraiture, genres which were accessible and socially respectable. They painted themselves, sisters and teachers, domestic scenes and objects. It was not long, of course, before these subjects were stereotyped as lowly and unintellectual. But let us not dwell on these hierarchies of subjects imposed in the past. Let us instead celebrate the greatness of such works since women did come to perfect these genres, monopolising their markets and even subverting them with proto-feminist twists. Starting with the Renaissance and going on to neoclassicism, spanning Europe, Asia and America, and mediums ranging from painting and pottery to the beginnings of photography, part one will uncover the triumphant women working across four centuries, ending with those establishing unique methods that were so inventive that they inadvertently influence what will become known as modern art. Chapter 1. Painting Herself into the Canon, circa 1500 to circa 1700. The Renaissance. Before we meet the radical Italian women in the later 16th and 17th centuries, I would like to single out two artists working prior to this. Caterina de Vigri, a writer, musician, nun, later known as St. Catherine of Bologna and accomplished painter of manuscripts, and Propertia de Rossi, a sculptor known for her rebellious pursuits. De Rossi was acclaimed for her meticulous and minute carvings in wood, marble and cherry stones. 
see Grassy Family Crest, 1510-30. She received commissions for the kind of work no woman had ever done before. For instance, her lively marble relief sculpture, Joseph and Potiphar's Wife, circa 1525-6, which she designed for the facade of Bologna's then most famous church, the Basilica di San Petronio. Both of these women were able to live as practicing artists because they were fortunate enough to be born in Bologna, a place renowned for its progressive attitudes towards women. At the time, Bologna was unique in championing the professions of women. The home of Europe's oldest university, which had supported female students since the 13th century, the city considered women artists as integral to its development. Praised by scholars, written about by biographers and adored by the locals, they were also supported by patrons of all social classes, from bankers to barbers, creating a varied culture of artistic patronage. By contrast, in Florence and Naples, commissioning was reserved for select noble families. Women were also encouraged to sign their work, as well as to paint self-portraits for the purposes of being known and, most importantly, remembered. No wonder scholars have recorded a staggering 68 women artists working in the city between the 15th and 18th centuries. These notable exceptions remind us that women have always been perfectly capable of being artists. But while there could have been an abundance of women working at this time, in reality, female artists were an absolute rarity, seen as tokens rather than pioneers. After de Rossi's death, no female sculptor is mentioned in the city's records for 200 years, and little knowledge remains of those working during the Renaissance period. Most of what we know has been passed down by male scholars and through legal documents, rarely from the women themselves. The Renaissance is considered to have begun in the mid-1300s, a good century or two before any detailed record of women artists emerges. Yet we begin this chapter in 1550s Italy, at a time when, as most history books will tell you, the splendours of the High Renaissance were almost over. The year 1550 was when Florentine art historian Giorgio Vasari published The Lives of the Artists, the first text of its kind to explore artist biographies, featuring some, but very few, women. It is also when the term Renaissance is coined. Translating as rebirth and revival, the Renaissance came about at a time of great economic prosperity and defined a new era of rapid learning and interest in the natural world. In central and northern Italy, artists and scholars rediscovered the ancient past and turned to the study of classical antiquity and literature. With many of the Italian states physically built upon ancient ruins, Artists and architects looked to them for theoretical and artistic influence. These included linear perspective, a technique utilising mathematical principles to create an illusion of depth and space to three-dimensional effect, naturalism to emphasise anatomical accuracy, and secular themes, encouraging humanism and the focus on the individual artists, scholars and subjects. Situated on the silk and the spice trade routes and acting as gateways to the consumerist West, the Italian states had amassed enormous riches which were often spent on artistic patronage. The artistic capitals were Rome, home to the Catholic Church, the most powerful and wealthy patron, which commissioned works as a means of spreading the divine message of God, and Florence, whose leading banking dynasties commissioned art as a means of demonstrating erudition 
opulence and their ties to the church. However, as noble families from each Italian state increased their riches, competition broke out among patrons who fought to employ the most acclaimed artists of the day. Greater art on a grander scale fueled technical advancements, and soon each city was attracting a plethora of international travellers. By the end of the 15th century, the Northern Renaissance was born, a cultural revolution outside Italy which saw Renaissance theory diffused across Europe and spurred an abundance of artistic commissions in the Netherlands, England, France and Spain. All this meant that artists were in great demand, but they were almost always men. However, unfazed by critics who said that the painter's brush was more manly or by those who referred to them as the passive sex, women fought back. They developed innovative painting techniques and taught younger generations of female artists to eschew the men who would try and stifle their creativity. One such woman was Plautilla Nelly, a Dominican nun who set up an all-female workshop at her convent. The first known Florentine female Renaissance artist, she was one of only four women among hundreds of men praised by Vasari in the lives of the artists. Entering a nunnery at the age of 14, Nelly became a self-taught miniaturist painter and then quickly worked her way up to tackling large-scale altarpieces, very rare for a woman of her day. She is now best known for The Last Supper, circa 1560, a recently restored jewel of a painting on canvas and the first known depiction of the biblical tale by a woman. Since 2019, it has hung in the refectory of the Santa Maria Novella in Florence, its first public outing in 450 years. As a woman, Nelly wasn't supposed to take on the challenge of large-scale religious paintings, but she did it anyway. Her richly coloured 7 by 2 meter portrayal of Jesus and his 12 apostles is full of anatomical accuracy and keen behavioural observations, seen, for instance, in the strained tendons of the apostles' necks and the tenderness of gesture between Jesus and St. John. Clearly invested in capturing naturalism, Nelly portrays St. John as a distinctly feminine figure, with soft features and blush-coloured cheeks, a common way of depicting him, but perhaps also indicating the lack of male models she might have had access to. It is likely Nelly had assistance from her fellow nuns in their all-woman workshop. How did Nelly come by the knowledge and skills that enabled her to undertake this work? We know that she rigorously studied and copied drawings by the Renaissance artist Fra Bartolomeo, with Vasari noting that she would have done marvellous things if, as men do, she had been able to study and learn to draw and work after living models. An artist who did manage to secure an artistic education was the northern Italian painter Sofonisba Anguissola, the daughter of a high-ranking Criminese nobleman who was financially compromised. Determined that his daughters should be well-educated, Anguissola's father made the unusual choice to send his two elders to apprentice with a local painter, perhaps due to the fact he didn't have a son until his seventh child. In this way, Anguissola was able to bypass social norms, earning enormous success and recognition during her lifetime. Holding the most prestigious position of a painter at the Spanish court, she was admired by Michelangelo and praised by Vasari, the latter remarking that her portraits are so lifelike that they lack only speech. Anguissola's quiet and intimate self-portraits display her poised manner and gleaming eyes. 
often depicting herself playing music or working at the easel with her paints all laid out and her brush at the ready. Anguissola epitomised what a mid-16th century woman with an education could be. Her success was so impactful that she inspired noble families from across Europe to instil in their daughters similar professional ambitions. Capturing women engaged in intellectual pursuits, she famously portrayed her sisters in the midst of a conversational and characterful game of chess. Although mostly confined to portraiture, Anguissola showed great skill in the sophisticated composition of her paintings, from the mountainous verdant landscapes behind the animated figures in the chess game 1555, to the intricate religious Madonna and child scene in self-portrait at an easel circa 1556. For me, however, her best portrait is self-portrait with Bernardino Campi, 1550. Clever and witty, this work is also groundbreaking in eschewing gender conventions. At first glance, we see Campi, an early teacher of Anguissola, looking over his shoulder to meet our gaze while controlling the young artist's image. But upon closer inspection, we realise that it is not he who is dictating her appearance, but rather she is dictating his. Not only is she taking up nearly twice as much space as her teacher and has him painting the embellishment of her jacket, a task often assigned to an apprentice, but as Pentimento temporarily uncovered in 1996, she originally painted her wrist meeting his, as if guiding his hand across the canvas. Angosola was capable of great things and in her old age was clearly just as sharp. When she was in her early 90s, she was painted by the much younger artist Anthony van Dyck. Captivated by her intellect, in 1624, van Dyck portrayed her as both astute and austere, qualities still evident in her piercingly resolute eyes, despite her near blindness. He recalled that she was still very alert and had advised him not to raise the light too high so that the shadows would not accentuate the wrinkles of old age. Although we will never know what she might have produced given the opportunities of her male counterparts, her paintings show a hunger for experimentation and highlight the canny ways she found to subvert the limits put on her talents. Unlike Anguissola, the slightly younger, Bolognese-born Lavinia Fontana did not restrict her production to portraiture. She painted religious and mythological scenes, some on the scale of magnificent altarpieces. Often thought to be the first professional woman painter to run her own studio, Fontana was the daughter of a well-known Bolognese painter and learned the tricks of the trade in his studio, developing her practice by copying his paintings. She adopted a wide-ranging, sophisticated style, with some of her works emulating the characteristics of mannerism, elongated limbs, swirling drapery, and dramatic curvilinear poses. Admired for her portraits, Fontana was especially popular with the Bolognese elite for her exceptional attention to detail and ability to capture sparkling jewels and exuberant patterns. My favourite remains Portrait of Bianca degli Utelli Maselli with six of her children, 1604-5, with each figure kitted out in matching outfits and gleaming lace ruffs. Full of ambition and determined to be remembered this way, Fontana immortalised herself as an educated artist in an array of self-portraits. In Self-Portrait in a Studio, 1579, we meet her at her desk, about to draw antique bronzes and plaster casts, her sumptuous garments telling of her high-ranking clientele. 
In another, self-portrait at the virginal with a servant, 1577, she plays the spinet with her easel illuminated in the background. But the love knot resting on the instrument reveals a little more. The work is intended as a gift for her future father-in-law, no doubt as a way to show him her talents. Further demonstrating her scholarly knowledge, a Latin inscription reads, Lavinia, the unmarried daughter of Prospero Fontana, took this, her image, from the mirror, 1577. Age 25, she married a former pupil of her father, who not only allowed her to keep her maiden name, but raised their 11 children. Running a successful studio, completing a staggering 24 public commissions, she quickly advanced to larger narrative paintings and her fame spread. By 1604, she had relocated to Rome, then the greatest place for artistic opportunity, where she became a member of the prestigious Academia di San Luca, and her work was admired by the Pope. Fontana is thought to be one of the first women in Western art to paint female nudes, as seen in her glittering and seductive Venus and Mars, 1595. Across Europe, in Flanders, women were also thriving as artists, although far less is known about them compared to their Italian counterparts. Working slightly earlier than Fontana, Caterina van Hemmersen also began painting in her father's studio and was active during the 1540s and 50s, prolifically producing small portraits, often displaying dark backgrounds plain clothing, and solemn expressions. Van Hemmersen is credited as the first artist, male or female, to paint a self-portrait at an easel. An inscription on her self-portrait from 1548 reads, I, Katerina Van Hemmersen, have painted myself. 1548, here, age 20. Like her Italian contemporaries, she intended to be remembered as a woman who worked. Thank you all so much for listening to the first 30 minutes of my audiobook, The Story of Art Without Men, which is published by Penguin on the 8th of September. Please join us on Thursday, the 8th of September at Victoria Mirror Gallery for an exhibition of the final chapter of the book, Still Writing, The Story of Art. Thank you so much to Christie's for their support, and I hope to see you soon.